Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. I'm your host, Brian Binkowski, editor of Agents of Change and senior editor at Environmental Health News. Today, I'm talking to senior fellow Asmal Hassan, a sociology PhD student and a national research trainee in interdisciplinary training, education, and research in food, energy, water systems at Colorado State University. You may remember Asmal writing about the weaponization of water in South Asia. Well, Asmal is now focused on water injustice in the Great Plains in the U.S. and how it impacts South Dakota tribes. We also discuss his role in a Fort Collins, Colorado air quality program and the recent announcement that he's one of just five selected young researchers from the U.S. for the Climate Champions Fellowship, which aims to improve diplomacy between the U.S. and China in tackling climate change. Enjoy! All right, I am again joined by Asmal Hossein. Asmal, how are you doing? Thanks, Brian, for having me here, and I'm doing good. Uh, I, I believe that you are also doing good. I am doing good. We had a chance to catch up a little bit, and you have so many ex- exciting things going on uh, since we last spoke to you. And you mentioned uh, connections to your research, and last time we talked, you were researching the India-Bangladesh water relationship. Uh, you both wrote about this and spoke to me on the podcast about it, but you've changed that up now and you're looking at water injustice in the Great Plains here in the United States. So first off, what similarities do you see between your past focus and the new one? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. Um, all the South Asia, specifically the Indian subcontinent and the United States are geographically far away. They have one commonality, that is history and legacy of colonialism. So the dimension of colonialism is different in both uh, regions, but both of them were invaded by European colonizers under the doctrine of discovery. Although the European colonizers, predominantly British, left the Indian subcontinent physically after 200 years of exploitation and resource extraction, that's why we call it exploitative or extractive colonialism, they kept their legacy through the development of political, cultural, and economic elite groups who were the main beneficiaries of colonialism in Indian subcontinent. subcontinent. For example, I would like to talk about British education policy in the Indian subcontinent. One of the basic goals of the implementation of the English medium education system under British rule was to create an English-educated elite group who were supposed to be Indian in their skin color but British in their manner and lifestyle. And they were successful with that policy. And this is the English-educated elite group in the Indian subcontinent that has been controlling the politics, economic, culture, and most importantly, all of the natural resources, like water. And it is the same situation in the whole Indian subcontinent, currently India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. The group was uh, the group who was less educated, have been marginalized politically, culturally, and economically, and have less access to natural resources like water. If you think about the scenario in the bilateral relationship between India and Bangladesh, you will see the same scenario. Because of its geographical size, economic advancement, and political power, India has been exercising a colonial type of diplomatic relationship with its neighboring countries like Bangladesh. And India has been controlling the water flows of all the major transboundary rivers through the establishment of major dams and barrages, 
If you look at the geographical map of South Asia, Bangladesh is located in downstream of the world's largest and most densely populated delta called the Ganges Brahmaputra Magna Delta, which we call the Great Bengal Delta. And Bangladesh receives 81% of its fresh water from the major transboundary rivers, originated mainly in the Himalayan glaciers and then flew through India to enter Bangladesh. That means Bangladesh is almost completely dependent on how India is managing and controlling the water flows in the transboundary rivers. And unfortunately, it is hegemonic. India constructed and is currently constructing a couple of dams and water resource management projects without considering how they will affect the ecosystems in Bangladesh. One example I want to mention here, India constructed the Farakka Barrage to divert water from the Ganges through the Bhagirathi Hooghly Channel to keep the port of Kolkata navigable. The water diversion from the upstream Ganges has detrimental consequences for the lives, livelihoods, and ecosystems in the downstream Ganges, which is current Bangladesh. Rural and indigenous communities who have an integral connection with the environment suffer the most due to this water crisis. The reasons are twofold. Water is sacred to indigenous communities due to its ceremonial, spiritual, and cultural significance. And local political elites control the water resources and often deprive indigenous communities of their rights to water. One example I can mention here in 2022, three indigenous young farmers in northwestern Bangladesh committed suicide because they have been repeatedly denied irrigation water by the water pump operator who is local members of the current ruling party. So this system makes an ecocracy in Bangladesh or in the Indian subcontinent, which refers a centralized authoritarian and bureaucratic system under which the water resources or natural resources are controlled by the local political elites. And it deprives the marginalized communities like indigenous communities in getting water. And similar things happened in, in the United States. European whites invaded the land and established their settlement through the doctrine of elimination, under which they persecuted and displaced the native Indians, grabbed their lands, and also attached resources like water. Currently, I am conducting my PhD research on how ongoing settler colonialism is generating water injustice among the tribal nations in the northern Great Plains, making them vulnerable to climate change adaptation. I am specifically focusing on the tribal nations and the reservations in the Missouri River Basin area, where both tribal nations and water resources are under pressure due to climate change. In addition, the settler colonial water resource management policies are exacerbating the vulnerabilities of the tribal nations and their local ecosystems on which they are completely dependent for their survival. As I mentioned earlier, water is sacred to indigenous communities because of its uh, ceremonial, spiritual, and cultural significance. Settler, colon settler colonial water management systems are creating barriers for the indigenous communities to get access to the water. I can give you one example here. The doctrine of prior appropriation is the determining feature of water resource management in the western United States. The Missouri River Basin area belongs to the doctrine of prior appropriation, where a considerable number of tribal communities have been living since time immemorial. And the doctrine of prior appropriation is based on the principle, the first in time, the first in right. Indigenous peoples should be considered as the senior water rights holders according to the principle and also according to the winter's doctrine. Unfortunately, it is not in reality. 
the doctrine of appropriation often ignores the sacred values of water by indigenous peoples. So in my PhD project, I am um, uh, trying to uh, make the connections between settler colonial water resource management policies and how these resource management policies are creating uh, water injustice among the indigenous populations and making them vulnerable to adapt with the changing climate in the northern Great Plain region. And I'm specifically focusing on the federally recognized tribal nations in the northern Great Plains. And um, uh, my initial uh, findings are showing that uh, uh, because of uh, settler colonial practices, they have been deprived in getting uh, water, both from surface and ground uh, water uh, aquifer, in, uh, which, is, which has a detrimental impact for their livelihoods, for their ceremonial, cultural, and spiritual practices. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, um, it's a fascinating connection to think about it um, in that way, that these are both colonial-driven uh, problems in very different parts of the world, of course. And so to zoom in a little bit more on the, on the Northern Great Plains, can you talk about your work with the Great Plains Tribal Water Alliance and, and what you found so far about water challenges for the nine tribal nations in South Dakota? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, for my PhD project, uh, I have been doing uh, participatory action research and I have been using uh, decolonizing and uh, indigenizing methodology uh, these approaches allows both the researchers and also research subjects to equally contribute to the research process uh, so that uh, the research subjects um, are uh, empowered uh, in the research process. And given this uh, uh, situation, I have been developing a strong partnership with Great Plains Tribal Water Alliance, which is a tribal grassroots organization located in South Dakota, working to ensure water justice for tribal nations in northern Great Plains through their right to self-determination mandated by the treaties they signed uh, with the U.S. federal government. You know, water is a sacred for tribal nations, uh, as I mentioned earlier, because of its ceremonial, spiritual, and cultural significance. For their livelihoods, tribal nations in the northern Great Plains are also heavily dependent on water. Uh, Missouri River, the longest river in North America, is the only source of fresh water for most of the tribal nations in living in the river basin. But the issue is that they don't have any control of the river. The river is controlled by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, mandated by the U.S. Congress. And the Army Corps of Engineers is responsible for the construction, operation, and maintenance of the river. They also constructed and operated dozens of dams in the river. The dams are known as tectocentric solutions to water problems basically coming from climate change in the Western world, which does not consider the social and environmental cons concerns. It does not acknowledge the traditional ecological knowledge in water resource management. So the Great Plains Tribal Water Alliance is a consortium organization of the uh, North Central Climate Adaptation Science Center. So they have a funding uh, to assess uh, the tribal climate change adaptation water needs in Northern Great Plains. And I joined with them in this project as a student intern uh, to assess uh, what are the needs and priorities 
of the tribal nations uh, in managing or in adapting uh, climate change, specifically uh, focusing on the water resource management. So currently, uh, under this project, I developed an annotated bibliography covering existing scientific literature on water resource management, climate change in the northern Great Plains, focusing on tribal nations. And based on the findings from the annotated bibliography, I developed an interview guide to conduct in-depth interviews with the water resource managers. And currently, I am conducting the interviews. Uh, and uh, I just presented the findings uh, of the uh, completed interviews last month in the annual Climate Change and Water Conference um, organized by Great Plains Tribal Water Alliance in Rapid City, South Dakota. If you look at the title of the uh, present of my presentation, you will have an idea like what are the basic findings of the uh, projects. So the title of presentation that I quoted from uh, a conversation that I had with one of the uh, water resource managers is, they write reports for us sometimes, but they have never been here. So this title um, shows us or indicates us that Tribal nations are not in the table, are uh, not having a participation or engagement in the decision-making process about water resource management in that region. And uh, this denotes uh, two major dimensions of environmental injustices. One is distributive justice, that we know that uh, tribal nations are disproportionately affected by uh, climate change and water uh, scarcity due to their uh, natural resource dependency, which reflects uh, distributive injustice. And also, uh, tribal nations don't have any access or in uh, participation in the decision-making process, which reflects the procedural injustice. So distributive injustice and procedural justice, injustice are the two major dimensions of environmental injustices. And in addition, there are also other challenges for the tribal nations, like surface and groundwater shortage, water contamination from both point and non-point sources, water in intensive mining, and the presence of heavy metals like arsenic, uranium, lithium, cyanide in water, and the lack of climate change expertise among the tribal nations, lack of intertribal cooperation, and most importantly, lack of funding they need to adapt with the changing climate. Well, this is a fascinating topic in an area of the country that simply does not get enough attention, um, whether it's um, tribal attention or, frankly, some of the rural parts of our country um, dealing with these water issues do not get the attention and research they deserve. So we will definitely um, keep our listeners and readers posted on what you're working on. But I am going to switch gears here because you have enough going on that we have to talk about a couple other things. Um, you are also now a member of the Fort Collins, Colorado Air Quality Monitoring Advisory Committee. Um, so first of all, when I think of Fort Collins, I don't think about bad air, but maybe I just don't know any better. So first of all, what are the air quality concerns in Fort Collins and what will you be doing in that role? Uh, yeah, Fort Collins uh, is, is, is one of the, I think, uh, uh, best cities in the United States I have ever lived. And uh, it is one of the most uh, peaceful and livable cities, as I mentioned. 
uh, I've been uh, so happy to have the opportunity to live in this uh, city. But still now, air quality is one of the major concerns for the city and also the northern Colorado. And there are a lot of sources of uh, air pollution, uh, like uh, uh, transportation, uh, indoor cooking systems, or wood smoking, or other lot of sources. But one of the major concerns for air quality is the, is, uh, the unconventional oil and gas uh, development. So the oil county, which is neighboring country of the Larimer County, where Fort Collins City is located, has the highest number of uh, unconventional oil and gas industries, which you call like fracking or hydraulic fracking, uh, as a single county. And uh, if you look at the dynamics of hydraulic fracking, it, it is water intensive and also it uses, it uses hundreds of chemicals to extract gas and oil uh, from underneath. And it uh, like um, emits a lot of chemicals in the air and which uh, pollutes the air in that region. And uh, given that situation, the Environmental Protection Agency awarded the city of Fort Collins, Larimer County Department of Health and Environment, and also Colorado State University, a grant to study air quality related to air toxics in communities throughout Larimer County and Northern Colorado over the next three years. And one of the important elements of grant is forming an advisory committee of community members to assist in air quality monitoring, deployment, and community prioritization of locations of monitoring related to local concerns. The committee is also the committee will also guide CSU Center for Environmental Justice, which will be organizing a number of public engagement events on air quality. So, as a member of the advisory committee, I will bring my environmental justice expertise in the board to show how air pollution is disproportionately affecting among communities uh, living in that region. In doing so, I will represent different groups uh, in that region, like uh, I'm a part of the Colorado State University, so I will represent CSU um, uh, in the board. I'm also coming from South Asia, so there is a growing um, uh, number of South Asian people uh, living in that region. I will also represent them. And most importantly, uh, I am a member of the Islamic Center of Fort Collins, uh, which represents the Muslim communities. And I will represent them also. So the reason why I applied for this position, because I found that uh, the South Asian communities and Muslim communities living in that region, they don't have any representation in the local government's decision-making process. So I felt that uh, engaging with this advisory committee will help me to represent the communities and also to empower the uh, communities in that region. Excellent. Well, they're lucky to have you. And it's it's good to be informed about uh, the city. I've been there once and I just remember riding bicycles and sunshine. And uh, <laughs> but of course, there is uh, there is a heavy fracking presence there um, as, as well. So um, that's good to know that you're working on that. And uh, a slight climate connection there with uh, oil and gas. But you are uh, part of something much broader and global in scope when it comes to looking at climate change. So the, actually, the reason that um, we reached out to you in the first place before I knew about all this other exciting stuff is that you are part of the Climate Champions Fellowship. So first of all, 
a big congratulations to you. That is no small feat. And second, can you talk a bit about this fellowship and what is its aim? Thanks, Brian, for, for your good words. And I'm happy to be part of this uh, incredible uh, fellowship. So the fellowship is organized by the Asia Foundation uh, with joint support from the U.S. Mission to China and the China Association for NGO Cooperation. If you look at the title of the fellowship, you may have a general idea of it. The title is 2030 Climate Champions, Young Leaders for a Brighter U.S.-China Future. There are 10 fellows in the program who are young environmental leaders, five from the USA and five from China. The fellowship aims to promote greater cross-cultural dialogue between youth in both countries through a partnership with the U.S. Mission to China and the China Association for NGO Cooperation. The 2030 Climate Champions Fellowship will strengthen diplomatic relationships ahead of the goals set forth by the 2050 COP27 Paris Agreement, where signing parties agreed to reduce their emissions by 43% by 2030 and revisit their original targets by 2023. We have been attending virtual skill-building sessions and master classes in the last couple of months, where we got rigorous training on public speaking, science communication in the field of climate change and climate justice. We also had the opportunity to hear from renowned leaders from governmental and non-governmental agencies, both in the United States and also from China, and also from corporate sectors from both countries on how they are addressing climate change and what are the strategies they are implementing to mitigate climate change and also to adapt with the changing climate. So this platform is a great opportunity for me to represent the United States in the global stage, specifically with our Chinese counterparts. And it's a great opportunity to know about more uh, like collective um, efforts uh, implemented by both United States and China in tackling climate change. So I think most of our listeners will, will probably know that both U.S. and China are are global superpowers. Are I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the two largest emitter of greenhouse gases. And uh, third, they don't always agree on things. So I'm wondering if you can kind of give us some high level points of why improving diplomacy between the U.S. and China is so key in tackling global global climate change. Uh, that's a great question, I think, and important uh, for the global climate negotiation. Uh, uh, but good thing is that when we are talking at the very beginning of the uh, of the new year, I, I'm, I don't know whether you know, the U.S. and China are celebrating the 45th anniversary of their diplomatic relationship. And China is the most and the U.S. is the third most populous country in the world. They contain almost 23% of the global population together. They are the two major economies in the world, sharing more than uh, 40% of the global GDP. Unfortunately, their economic success is achieved through the burning of fossil fuels, the main responsible factor for climate change. But the good thing is that these two countries are not only the major greenhouse gas emitters in the atmosphere, as you mentioned, but they are also the largest investors in the renewable energy sectors, which is a positive sign uh, to tackle the climate change. They have been working together to achieve the desired goal set by the Paris Agreement, which is keeping the global temperature rise 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to the pre-industrial levels. 
So it is so important to improve diplomacy between the U.S. and China to tackle global climate change. And it is a matter of hope that despite all the geopolitical conflicts or all the geopolitical or global uh, disagreements, both countries are committed to working together on climate change diplomacy. At the end of the last year, President Biden met President Xi in San Francisco and expressed their commitment to continue the climate change negotiation. And also the U.S. Special Envoy for Climate Change, John Kerry, frequently meets his Chinese counterpart to keep, to keep the negotiation alive. And I believe that, uh, as we mentioned, that uh, we are living in a highly contentious and uh, contentious world where China and the United States are fighting with each other in different geopolitical issues. But it is a matter of hope that they have a consensus that climate change is one of the most pressing problems uh, human civilization is confronting, and uh, they are committed together uh, to go further with the climate change diplomacy and negotiation so that we can contain uh, the devastating effects of climate change. I have to say, when I when I was looking into this fellowship uh, in, in anticipation of this call, it gave me hope. It made me feel really good to know that these kind of efforts are underway, not only just a diplomatic effort of two countries talking with with leaders, but young leaders and young leaders who are thinking about these issues coming from different research areas in different ways. So I, I think this I would really encourage our listeners to go and check out this program. It looks it looks really exciting. And speaking of exciting, what are you most excited about when it comes to this fellowship? Well, I'm most exciting about the fellowship is to have a chance to collaborate with the five Chinese fellows. Usually, we don't have enough access to Chinese policies and strategies, uh, specifically if we focus on like environmental stuff or climate change. Uh, it is not only in climate change, but also in every other issues. We don't have enough access uh, to the Chinese policies and strategies because of the nature of the political governance system of the country. But it was a great thing to know the experiences and perspectives of the young Chinese fellows and environmental activists. They have been doing incredible jobs in the field of climate change and climate justice and also climate change negotiation. We, the U.S. fellows, are hoping to continue this collaboration even after the end of the fellowship through an in-person climate champions forum to be held in San Francisco this April. So I think this fellowship created a like a window for the young leaders from the United States to know more about uh, the activities and uh, efforts done by the young climate, uh, young Chinese climate uh, activists and also uh, experts, so that uh, we can uh, look forward uh, to have a bilateral collaboration uh, to implement different projects. Uh, to make awareness among the general people in both countries, and most importantly, to ask the policymakers uh, uh, in both countries to take initiatives uh, to tackle climate change. And is if someone searches uh, Asia Foundation Climate Champions Fellowship, is that the best way for people to learn about this and stay on top of things? Yeah, no, I think the website is the uh, perfect place uh, to check. But currently, the fellows, we are working to go further with the fellowship. So probably we are thinking to develop a platform 
combining all the fellows uh, from both China and the United States. And still we are in, in the initial process. But uh, I think in the coming days, uh, we'll be able to share more insights, like what is uh, our plan and how we'll go further. But at the, uh, currently, uh, the website is the uh, perfect place uh, to look for. Excellent. And we will keep a listeners uh, on top of any other products and content that comes out of this, and we will link to it um, when we put this podcast out. And last question here, and as we've seen today, you are quite busy, and, and we were speaking before this, and I happen to know you're even busier than what we talked about today. So I just want to ask you, why is it so important to include these additional fellowship, leadership roles, community outreach, out, outreach positions in addition to your research? Because a lot of people would just go and get the PhD and get the job. <laughs> but it seems like you are very interested in putting this into practice in a lot of different ways. So why is that so important to you? Uh, I understand. And uh, uh, thank you so much for raising the issues. Uh, along with my PhD uh, research, and also I am a teaching instructor. I am teaching two classes every semester in my department uh, for my PhD funding. I've been uh, uh, involved in different fellowships, uh, community outreach and engagement, like uh, one of the great fellowships is Agents of Change in Environmental Justice. I ever uh, participated. So, uh, as you know, my research interest is um, environmental injustice and also uh, community engagement and science communication. So, um, uh, along with my PhD research, why I have been involved in so much so other uh, uh, platforms or other uh, programs, uh, there are a couple of reasons. One is uh, my family. So, I'm from a resilient family from Bangladesh. My parents never want to went to any formal school. And their economic condition was not up to the mark. But they dedicated their whole life to educate their children so that they can be resilient against all the odds in life. They taught us that it is the purpose of education to speak against any injustices, whether it is social, political, economic, or environmental. We are six siblings, and it is a matter of happiness to share that we all completed at least an undergraduate-level degree. And now we are working in different sectors, both in Bangladesh and the USA. You will be surprised to know that I left my home when I was around 10 years old, when I was like in grade four for education. I left my home. Uh, I was residing. Uh, you know, uh, there is a system in Bangladesh called, I don't know the exact English name, but in Bengali, we call it lodging system. So I left my home to live in the house of other people. And from the age of 10, I have been teaching kids in their home in exchange of accommodation and food. So uh, from the very beginning of my life, I have been uh, facing odds, struggles, and challenges. And until today, I believe that I have been successful to overcoming all the hurdles and challenges. And I believe that if uh, it's my responsibility uh, as a successor in my life to make awareness about, about all the injustices or the hurdles or the challenges people are facing around the world. And another thing is my country, you know, Bangladesh. Uh, it's a small South Asian country with high population density. 
poverty, natural resource dependence, and most importantly, a poster child of climate change. Because of its geographical location, it is highly vulnerable to climate change, although it has little contribution to the problem. But Bangladesh is known worldwide as a resilient country against climate change, specifically for its community-based climate change adaptation strategies. Although the country has a history of fighting against colonialism, as I mentioned earlier, if you look at the history of resistance against British colonialism in the Indian subcontinent, you will find that most of the resistance was coming from the Great Bengal region in Indian subcontinent then, currently Bangladesh region. Not only that, we also fought against Pakistan uh, in, uh, f- from 1947 to 1971 and sacrificed 3 million lives during the independence war in 1971 to be separate from the exploitative and hegemonic relationship with Pakistan. Although the current political situation is in Bangladesh is not consistent with our glorious history, but it is the history of the country from where I get all of my inspiration to be active in social and environmental justice steps. And also, most importantly, my education. Uh, my field is sociology, uh, specifically environmental and natural resource sociology. And sociology uh, teaches me to be aware how and why environmental benefits and burdens are disproportionately distributed among different classes, races, gender groups, and nationalities. And I came to know that the structural forces like colonialism, capitalism, racism, patriarchy are generating or fueling these injustices uh, around the different corner of the world. And uh, from that perspective and from that background, I believe that it is my responsibility to uh, fight against these um, structural forces to fight against the injustices generated by the structural forces and to make people's life uh, safe, happier, and healthy around the world. Well, that was a really beautiful way to end. And I can say that you are doing that. And it has been so lovely to catch up with you. And just the brief amount of time that I had um, uh, before this call with you and the research I did before, uh, it makes me really proud to to, to know you and call you a colleague in this space. So thank you so much for your time today, and I'm sure we will have you back on soon. Thanks, Brian. I'm so happy to have the opportunity to spend some time with you again and to talk about my research and activism. That's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Asmal. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangenej.org, and while you're there, click the Donate button to support us or sign up for our free monthly newsletter. You can also find us on X and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify or iTunes, where you can subscribe, give us a rating, and never miss an episode. This Agents of Change podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Have a great week, folks.